we bow together in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we come to give thee thanks for the simplicity of the words of thy Son concerning that which is essential if we would spend eternity with thee. And we ask in the quietness of this evening hour, even as long ago, in the quietness of an evening hour, Nicodemus came to thy son and was instructed in the way of life. So may we be instructed by thy spirit. And this we pray in his precious name. Amen. Shall we turn together to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. Reading from verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night, and said unto him, Rabbi, that is, teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? If you could take a man who was convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, And as the Son of God could show him the way to heaven. A man who had never been in touch with or influenced by any individual or any denomination. And you placed a New Testament in his hands. That's all he had. And his only hope of heaven 
would be to study that New Testament and find out what Jesus Christ had to say about what must happen before a man can enter heaven. He would encounter four accepts uttered by our Lord himself. Now, ultimately, where you spend eternity depends entirely upon whether or not you believe and respond to what Jesus Christ has said. It's not going to depend upon what the Baptist preacher tells you or the Methodist preacher or the Presbyterian or any other preacher. It's going to depend entirely upon what God in Christ says to you from his eternal word. Now, we all know that, but we need to be reminded of it. The first except is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, here our Lord reveals to us very clearly that if we are to enter heaven, we must have a righteousness which is superior to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were not ordinary men. They were the fundamentalists of their day. They were the defenders of the faith. They believed in the resurrection. They fasted two times a week. They were men totally, con totally committed to what they believed. And yet our Lord said concerning these men, totally committed as they were, their righteousness can never get them to heaven. Now, what was the problem with these men? What was the righteousness that they believed to possess or to achieve? Paul, in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, speaks to us about such men. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That was their problem. Now he says in verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He says they have a zeal of God. They're zealous. But they don't have true knowledge. And this is expressed in their conduct. They are going about to what? Establish their own righteousness. That was their problem. Then in verse 4 he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now we've seen in our study of Romans that 
The gospel is all about the righteousness of God. Being justified freely by his grace. And the justified man is declared righteous by God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the works of the law, says Paul, shall no flesh be justified. And again that beautiful verse in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that, even the faith, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works. Now that rules out the Pharisee and the scribe. Not of works. Why? Lest any man should best. That's why. Paul again in the first chapter of his first epistle to Corinthians, he says, no flesh will glory in God's presence. The glory is all his sons and not man. But then Paul reveals to us in verses 9 and 10 how a man can be justified and declared righteous in God's sight. Verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. Now he's very clear here. He said if you confess with the mouth Jesus is Lord, and to confess him as Lord means to submit to him as Lord, the Lordship of Christ must be preached first. And believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now that's clear. A confession with the mouth as Lord, which means a submission to him as Lord, and a belief in the heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, For with the heart man believeth. Now we need to underline that. He doesn't merely believe with his head, although his head obviously has a part. It's much more than his head. With the heart man believeth unto, and then we come to this beautiful word again, unto righteousness. Man believeth unto righteousness. The righteous man in God's sight is a man who has believed. And the man who has believed has confessed Christ as his Lord and he has trusted him as his Savior, the one who died for him, was buried, and rose from the dead. Very clear, very simple. But what does God mean by the heart? For with the heart man believeth. The first three references in the Bible to the heart reveal to us what is meant by the heart. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continually. So when the Bible speaks about the heart, it speaks about the intellect, the thoughts of his heart. Then verse 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Grief is an emotion. So when the Bible speaks about the heart, it speaks about the intellect, and it speaks about the emotional element. Then in chapter 8 and verse 21, And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. The Lord said in his heart, I will not. So the heart includes that which is volitional. So when the Bible speaks about the heart, it speaks about three things. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe with the heart. You believe with the intellect, the emotions have a part, and the will has a part. Intellect, emotion, and will. Now, our next except is in Luke chapter, thir chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. I tell you nay, and our Lord is speaking, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So here we have another except, and it's a very important except because it has been neglected in our time. Repentance. When we study the Gospels, we encounter two great preachers. Our Lord and John the Baptist both preached repentance. We come to the Acts of the Apostles and again we're confronted by two mighty preachers, Paul and Peter. Both preached repentance. Paul tells us he preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter on the day of Pentecost when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? The first word out of his mouth was, repent. You must repent. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Repentance. You cannot be saved unless you repent. You cannot see the kingdom of God except you repent. It's not without significance that we are told there's rejoicing among the angels of heaven over one sinner that believes. No, over one sinner that repents. There was a dear man of God who lived in the city for many years. He went to be with the Lord about five years ago. He was a very wise man, deeply taught in the things of the Spirit, and he was a very accurate discerner of character. He was, for some time, an itinerant Bible teacher. He went to a little town in North Carolina to have a week of meetings. He lived in a boarding house. About the third or fourth night of the meetings, the lady of the boarding house said to him, 
Uh, Mr. Caldwell, how many people have made decisions for Christ? He said, none. Silence. Nobody? None. You don't seem to be disturbed? I'm not. Why are you not disturbed? I didn't come here to get them to make decisions. Oh. You didn't get them to come here to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, yes. Finally. You didn't come to get them saved? No. She was astounded. Mr. Caldwell, you didn't come to get these poor people saved? He said, no, I came to get them lost. He's a wise preacher. Jesus only saves lost sinners. I came to get them lost. You get a man lost and he will repent. But if you don't get him lost, he will make a superficial decision which is nothing more than an intellectual assent to certain facts about Jesus Christ and he is lost. That's the problem of our time. A merely intellectual assent which passes for belief with the heart. And that it is not. Repentance. What is repentance? I'm going to quote for a number of scholars. Because if there's anything we need to define and we need to understand, it's repentance. And the first is strong from his systematic theology. He says, repentance is that voluntary change in the sinner's mind in which he turns from sin. Now that is very simple. Repentance is that voluntary change in the mind of the sinner in which he turns from sin. It is an inward turning from sin and disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. So there is a turning from sin and a disposition to seek pardon and to seek cleansing. The next is Dr. Ironside, who was one of the leaders of the Brethren in his day. He has this to say about repentance. No man can truly believe in Christ who does not first repent. Repentance implies a complete reversal of one's inner att attitude. To repent is to change one's attitude towards self, towards sin, toward God, toward Christ. Now that's very biblical. Let me repeat it. To repent is to change one's attitude towards self, towards sin, toward God, toward Christ. Then Berkhoff, a Reformed theologian. Repentance the negative element of conversion. Repentance looks to the past and may be defined as that change wrought in the conscious life of the sinner by which he turns from sin. Dr. Hodge, another Reformed theologian. Repentance expresses that hatred and renunciation of sin and returning unto God which accompanies faith as its consequence. Now that's a very good definition. 
which accompanies faith as its consequence. In other words, what Hodge is saying to us, to us here, and all the great theologians have said the same thing, that a man is saved by a repentant faith. They do not separate the words. Then Calvin, the great Calvin, he has a strong word. He says, since pardon or remission is offered by the preaching of the gospel in order that the sinner, liberated from the tyranny of Satan, from the yoke of sin, and the miserable servitude of his vices, may remove into the kingdom of God. No one can embrace the grace of the gospel, but he must depart from the errors of his former life, enter into the right way, and devote all his attention to the exercise of repentance. That's strong. No one can embrace the grace of the gospel, but he must depart from the errors of his former life, enter into the right way, and devote all his attention to the exercise of repentance. He must be willing to do that. One of the saddest experiences I've ever had as a preacher was in the early years of my preaching. I was sharing a conference with a dear man of God in South Australia. And at that conference was a large busload of teenagers that had come up from the city of Adelaide. And the last night of the conference, an appeal was made, and a number of these youngsters responded to the appeal. They came into the inquiry room, and I knelt with them to pray with them. And I shall never forget my experience with the last girl. I can still see that girl. She was slim. She was a brunette. And we knelt down together to pray. And I explained to her what she had to do to be saved. Is that what you're willing to do? Yes. You want to be saved? Yes. Willing to come God's way? Yes. So I said, all right, now, you tell the Lord in your own words what you're doing. She said, well, I find it difficult to pray. I said, will you pray this prayer after me? Dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, I do believe, I do believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for my sins, died for my sins. And I do now turn from my sin. No answer. I do now turn from my sin. No answer. I said, can't you pray that? She didn't answer me. So I said to her, you realize you cannot have your sin and the Savior too. You must make a choice. And she said, I will have my sin, thank you. But God is not mocked. That night, the bus overturned on the road to Adelaide and that girl was the only person killed. That night she died. I've never forgotten that. But she was honest. She was honest. You get some Australians like that, they're brutally honest. She was honest. She wasn't covering up. She didn't have a facade. She said, well, I have my sin. 
But there are some people who say, I now turn from my sin, from my sin and they don't. And they're lost. They've never repented. Now all of these definitions, they sound accurate and they are biblical and they are, but can we sum it all up in a simple statement? One of the great theologians of our time is Dr. Packer. And Dr. Packer says this about repentance. It's very simple, but very adequate. This is the fruit or the result of repentance. He said, it is a new life of denying self and serving the Savior as king in self's place. Very simple. It is a new life, he said, because why? It's been a turning from the old life. He says it's a new life. Of what? Denying self. And serving the Savior as king in self's place. What is he saying? That self has been dethroned in repentance. Self has been dethroned. Sin has been turned about against, and there's been a 180 degree turn from sin and from self to Christ that he might be king of the life and served as such. Now that's the fruit of repentance. It's very simple. But it's adequate. Let me say it again. Because unless you've repented, my friend, you are lost. You're lost. You say, oh, Mr. Carr, I don't know about that. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've professed him as Lord. Our Lord has some terrible words to say to us in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful works, and in thy name cast out devils. Now that's quite a performance. They call him Lord. But our Lord said not, Everyone that saith to me, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So here you have, not a few, but many. He says, many shall say to me in that day. Many, not a few. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, in thy name done many wonderful works. What would he say? Depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. My dear friend, it's not your testimony to the knowledge of Christ as Savior that really counts. The thing that really counts is his testimony concerning you. Does he know you? He said, I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. Yet they called him Lord, Lord. You say, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the, he's the Son of God. Well, so are the devils. You've confessed him, so had the devils. What did they say? We know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? They knew who he was. They testified. They knew who he was. 
They said, you're the Holy One of God. That was the testimony of devils. You can have nothing more than a devil's faith. That's not going to save you. You have to repent. You have to repent. Then we come to the third except. It's in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So they came to the Lord, the disciples. They want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what is his answer? He said, you want to know who is the greatest? You want to know the law of greatness? You have to come down to the level of a little child even before you can enter heaven. Now, this condition here is very often ignored. But that's what he said. Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye be converted, that's first, and become as little children, doesn't finish there. Ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is conversion? It has been defined as in conversion, faith is the turning of the soul to God, as repentance is the turning of the soul from sin. Good definition. Conversion, in conversion, faith is the turning of the soul to God, as repentance is the turning of the soul from sin. Or true conversion involves repentance and faith, it issues in the forgiveness of sins. In other words, in conversion, you have the negative and the positive, you have the repentance and you have the faith. Well, what about the little child? Campbell Morgan is one of the great exegetes of the last century in this. Some would consider him to be the greatest. And he has this to say. What is the level of a little child? Imperfection simplicity and submissiveness. Three things. Imperfection, simplicity, and submissiveness. Imperfection, waiting for correction and instruction in order to development if there is the true child nature. Let me say that again. Imperfection, Waiting for two things, correction and instruction, in order to development. Is that your attitude tonight? As you sit here to hear the word of God? Conscious of your imperfection and waiting to be corrected? Waiting to be instructed in order to perfection? 
The second word, simplicity. Complexity is not yet in the child, thank God. I've often said if I would have had my choice, if the Lord would have said to me, choose your ministry, I would have said without hesitation, I will be a child's evangelist. Because there's no guile in the child. The child will respond to the touch of the loving hand. It's a beautiful thing to tell a child about Jesus Christ. That's a great privilege. So what do you find in the child? Simplicity. Simplicity. They have not yet become complex, and there's no guile there. And then, submissiveness. Give the little child its opportunity, and it will respond, and it will. So here we have a condition. You have to become, not as a child, but as a little child. And the little child is characterized by what? Simplicity, imperfection, and submissiveness. But in this accept of conversion, we come to faith. And we've seen as we've listened to the lectures from Mr. Johnson and Mr. Nurnberg that there's been a constant reference to faith. Well, what is faith? I want to quote from another man, a theologian, whose work on systematic theology is used extensively throughout the Bible colleges of this nation, Dr. Thiessen. There's this to say, the thought of surrender is also implied in the exhortation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the direct de declaration that we must confess Jesus as Lord if we would be saved. To believe in him as Lord is to recognize him as Lord and we cannot recognize him as Lord until we ourselves abdicate. This note in faith is today often overlooked or even referred to a later time of consecration, but the scriptures connected with the initial experience of salvation. So he emphasizes, and correctly so, the element of surrender in faith. But what is faith? Faith has been defined as, it's a beautiful definition, personal trust in a person. Handley Mole, the great evangelical scholar of his day, godly man. Personal trust in a person. George Payton was one of the pioneer missionaries to the South Sea Islands. And he was translating the New Testament into the language of the islanders, and he, he just couldn't get a word for faith. And he studied and studied and thought and thought and listened and listened to what the natives have to say, and he just couldn't get his word for faith. He didn't trouble. And then one day, one of his natives, native helpers, who'd been on a long trek, staggered into the compound, came over to his little hut, sweating, tired, exhausted, and just flung himself on a couch and stretched himself out. And he said, it's wonderful to be able to lean my whole weight on this couch. And Patton said, 
Say it again. <laughs> Say it again. So it is wonderful to be able to lean my whole weight on this couch. He had his word for faith. Had his word for faith. It has within it the element of commitment. Of course it does. He could believe that he could rest if he flung himself onto the couch, but he's got to do it to experience it. He can believe about it without being, believing on it. You can believe about Jesus Christ without believing on him. That will never save you. I can believe, as I did for years, that the plane would leave Greenville at approximately 5.10, 5.15 Friday evening and take me to Atlanta. But that doesn't get me to Atlanta. I have to go to the airport, I have to commit myself to the plane. I'm believing on the plane, now I'm believing. Before I believed about, now I'm believing on. I've made a commitment. And it will take me to my destination. You want to arrive at the destination of heaven, you've got to commit yourself totally, without reserve, to Jesus Christ as your Savior. And rest solely and only on Him to save you. That's what faith's all about. You say, oh, I've done that, but did you repent? Did you repent? About five, six weeks ago, I had a long-distance telephone call from a friend, and she said to me, I would like you to visit a very close friend of mine. He's in the hospital in Greenville, Memorial Hospital. And I said, well, I'm very sorry, my dear sister, but I'm, I'm simply snowed under. I'm weeks behind. We've got some conferences coming up, and I'm just not visiting anybody. In fact, I'm not taking any meetings outside of Greenville. She said, but he is dying. I said, well, all right, I'll visit him if he's dying. And I can visit him Sunday afternoon. Can you tell me a little about him? Is he a Christian? No. Does he attend any church? No. Is he very interested in the things of God? No. But he's dying of cancer and he has about a month to live. So I said, yes, I'll visit him. So I entered the hospital room and I saw this man lying on his bed, he had a very sensitive face, obviously in pain. He was an MD, a psychiatrist, a very sinful man. So, I said, do you mind if we pray? No. So we pray. I said, do you mind if I speak to you about Jesus Christ? No. I said, you know, we have to make up our mind about Jesus Christ. It's of no use saying he's the greatest man that ever lived or he's the greatest prophet who ever lived. He is either God or the greatest impostor that ever lived. Because when a man says, I am God, manifest in flesh, he either is who he says he is or he is the greatest impostor ever to walk the face of the earth. I said, now you've got to make up your mind 
about Jesus Christ. He didn't say anything. And I knew that I would have to at once introduce him to Nicodemus. And so we turn to John chapter 3. Nicodemus. I had to prove to him first that he didn't have to be religious to go to heaven. That was important for this man because he was anything but religious. He'd gone deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. Deep into sin. So I had to prove to him you don't have to be religious to go to heaven. And Nicodemus, of course, is the classic example. So we turn to Nicodemus. He's not an ordinary man. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a doctor of the law. He's a man highly respected, looked up to, admired. He's reached the apex. He's at the top, religiously, and he's lost. And he came to Jesus by night. Why he came tonight? By night, we don't know. It doesn't matter. But he came. Perhaps that he might have an uninterrupted interview with the Lord. And he begins very respectfully. He says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now, only men of the schools were rabbi, and our Lord was not a product of the rabbinical schools. He was an itinerant lay preacher. He said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles except God be with him. Now, I want you to notice our Lord's answer. He came straight to the point concerning the need of Nicodemus. What did he say? He didn't say, well, Nicodemus, I am not a rabbi. No, he completely ignored what Nicodemus said. He said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nothing to do with miracles, nothing to do with his being a teacher. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, you need to be born again. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Nicodemus says, how can it be? How can you enter your mother's womb and be born again, or born a second time? Then our Lord uttered these words, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, John in his epistle will very often say exactly the same thing in a slightly different way. So I have to study very, very carefully what he's saying. But what he's saying to us here is you have to be born of the Spirit. But he says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, the theologians, uh, they, they disagree as to just what water means here. What does it mean? Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Well, if you go over to Peter, you find being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. 
So there are many who say this means the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and others say other things. But there's one thing it cannot mean. It cannot mean baptism. Why? Because there was no such thing as Christian baptism when our Lord uttered these words. Now please remember that. It's a principle interpretation. How do you understand what is being said? What does it mean to the man that hears it? Well, it couldn't mean Christian baptism. There's no such thing as Christian baptism. There was John's baptism, but that wasn't Christian baptism. That was a baptism unto repentance. There could not be Christian baptism until Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again from the dead. Now, please remember that. Would that my mother had known that. Oh, yes. You may smile. But when I was a little boy, I remember quite clearly going to my mother. I was about four years old. And I said, Mummy, will I go to heaven when I die? She said, Yes, you will. I said, How do you know? She said, Well, you were taken to St. Vincent's when you were a little baby and you were baptized. And she believed that. She believed it. I was a Christian. I'd been baptized. And I believed it too. Until I was convicted of my sin as a teenager. And converted. The one thing it cannot mean is Christian baptism. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Now what is he saying to us here? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Now man's dilemma has always been this, and you will find that this in religions. Trying to change flesh into Spirit. That's his dilemma. Trying to change flesh into spirit. Can't be done. Our Lord is saying here, now this is a different creation. You have a creation of the flesh and you have a spiritual creation. Totally different creation. How do you enter this earth? You enter it by being born of the flesh. Born of a woman. There's no other way you can come into this earth. Into this world. No other way. Now he's saying there's only one way you can enter heaven. You must be born of the Spirit. There's no other way. Just as you came to this earth, born of a woman, born of the flesh, so to enter heaven, you must be born of the Spirit. Now we may smile when we think of somebody trying to change flesh into spirit, but I can assure you, if you've ever been to India, you won't smile. Malcolm Muggeridge, one of the great controversialists of our time, visited India. And he saw this Indian prostrate himself on the ground, and he made a little mark, and he stood again, he prostrated himself again on the ground, made a little mark where his head was, prostrated himself again on the ground. What's he doing? He was in Benares, called Holy City in India. 
he was going to go hundreds of miles to Cochin. Hundreds of miles doing that. What is he trying to do? He's trying to change flesh into spirit. He's trying to become spiritual. The holy men of India, what will they do? They will lie on a bed of nails. They will walk through fire. What are they trying to do? They're trying to change flesh into spirit. The Lord said, you can't do that. You've got to be born again. What is the new birth? It's the beginning of a life that was never there before. That's what it is. There's a certain YMCA in this country, I don't know whether they still have this word on the entrance to the YMCA, but there it was, written in large letters over the entrance, Jesus Christ makes bad men good and good men better. Well, that's just what he does not do. He makes new men. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. A new creation. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. A new creation. He's a new creation. He's been baptized into Christ. He's become a partaker of the very life of Christ. He's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new. I had the privilege in 1949 and 1950 of living in a manor house in England. It had 33 rooms, 19 staff, butler, footman, assistant to the footman, number one maid, number two maid, dog kennel maid, you name it, they had it. And I became a very close friend of the master of the manor, a very brilliant man, well-known throughout Europe. We became very good friends. And he came to me one day and he said, Joe, he said, Baroness von Damrika is coming today to stay with us for a week. And she's the Christian in our family. A distant relative. He's the Christian. He said, I'm sure you'll have wonderful fellowship with her. So the Baroness arrived in one of the three Rolls Royces and we had morning tea together. So I said to a Baroness, when were you born again? She looked at me. What do you mean? I explained to her what I meant. She said, I've never been born again. I said, would you like to be born again? She said, yes. And so we spent an hour or two together, plenty of time, just quietly going through the word of God. Then she got down on her knees and she came to the Lord. And my friend, who was rather pompous, he came home that night and he marched in in his usual way 
And about 10 minutes later, he came to me quite rumpled. He said, Joe, the Baroness told me she'd never been born again. I said, that's right, she hadn't. He was shocked. From a moral viewpoint, character, they couldn't put a finger on the woman. Tremendous woman, and she was lost. Oh yes, you can cultivate the flesh, you can educate it, you can cultivate it, teach it manners, still flesh. You can make it very religious, it's still flesh, and it will never enter heaven. What is the new birth? It's the beginning of a life that was never there before. When were you born again? When did you turn from your sin and your self-centeredness and your selfishness, your self-orientation, 180 degrees? When did you do that? And you turn to Christ to rest on him alone as the one who bore your sins on that cross and shed his blood for your redemption. You committed yourself to him as a sinner to be saved and you surrender to him as your Lord to rule over you as your master. When did you do that? That is conversion. And without it, you are lost. You are still in your sins. During the Second Great Evangelical Awakening, there were some tremendous, powerful lay preachers, and one of them was a man named Caesar Malin. And he came to a town in England, in Manchester, to hold a series of meetings. And he lived in the home of Charlotte Elliot. Now, Charlotte Elliot was a very wealthy English noblewoman. She was a product of the finest English schools of the Victorian era, a sophisticated lady. She was an Anglican, a woman of the church. She'd been confirmed in the church. She believed the Bible. She believed everything the Bible said about Jesus Christ. Very attractive Englishwoman. Very cultured. And Caesar Maryland lived in a home. And about the fourth or fifth night of the meetings, the Spirit of God had been speaking to Charlotte Elliot. And she realized that she'd never been born again. And so one evening when Caesar Malin returned from the meeting, you know there's something very attractive about a truly cultured Englishwoman. Beautiful manners, gracious. She said to him, I've never been born again. He said, I know you haven't. She said, well, what shall I do? He said, you must come to Christ. She said, but how shall I come? 
He said, come just as you are. Just as you are. And she came just as she was. How do you come? Just as you are. And she wrote the beautiful hymn, possibly the greatest appeal hymn of all time. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. She was coming on a promise of Jesus Christ. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And so she came. And she was converted. And she wrote the beautiful hymn. And I'm going to ask Steve to sing it for us. I think it's 53 in your hymnal. It's in the 50s. And as Steve sings, if the Lord has spoken to you this evening, you've never repented, you've never believed with all your heart, you've never been converted, you're not resting on Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. As Steve sings, will you not just open your heart to the Lord? I'm not going to ask for any open display. But if the Spirit of God has spoken to you, yield to him. He may never speak again. You are dealing with God. That girl that night never knew that that was her last night on this earth. Now, I don't use emotional appeals. I don't respond to the emotions. I preach the word and let the Spirit of God apply it to your heart need. And if he's spoken to you tonight, there's, a, there's been a facade. You're not a Christian. You're still living for yourself. You're still in the center of your own life. You've never repented. But tonight you're going to repent. And you're going to believe. And you're going to become Christ's man. You're going to become Christ's woman. And live for his sake and for his glory. Now, if you will, as Steve is singing, just say to the Lord, I will. That's all you need to say. Because if you believe with your heart, not only your intellect or your emotional response to what Jesus Christ has done for you, but you surrender your will to the will of God. Henceforth to be ruled by his will, not yours. That's when you are saved, when that will is surrendered to the will of God for your life. And it's his will that you should repent, and it's his will that you should believe. Open your heart. All you have to say is, Lord, I will. Shall we bow together in prayer? Father, we know that as thy dear servant has reminded us, we are here just for a season, 
than above for eternity. We ask for mercy for those bowed in thy presence who know not Christ. That you will be merciful to them and grant them grace unto repentance and grace unto faith that they might be saved, that they might be declared righteous because of the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.